Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And then if you look in the Confession of Faith, page 932, chapter 21 of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day, section 1, The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, and with all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Section 2. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but of Christ alone. Section 3. Prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted. It is to be made in the name of of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and, if vocal, in a known tongue. Section 4. Prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. 5. The reading of the Scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching, and the conscionable hearing of the Word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, beside religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are, in their several times and seasons, to be used in an holy and religious manner. 6. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed, or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly 
in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. Seven, as it is the law of nature, that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, <clears throat> so in his word by a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ <clears throat> was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. And then finally, number eight, this Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Amen. <clears throat> So tonight we are talking about the subject of worship, and I want to use the uh, Westminster uh, chapter here on worship as our outline, excuse me. <clears throat> and, um, and I want to take us through that, but also you may want to have your Bible handy because I am going to, at least um, in the first half of our message tonight, be talking uh, to you from various passages as well, so a little bit of sword drills tonight. So just be prepared for that. This chapter um, is about the worship of God, and the Westminster Divines, interestingly, open uh, with two things in the first section. First is the light of nature, and then secondly is the second commandment. And I found that personally interesting, that they would begin the subject of worship uh, with the second commandment, and then in the second paragraph move to the first commandment. Um, why do they begin with the second commandment? I'm not exactly certain, but um, I do want to follow their guidance on this. So <clears throat> if you notice here in chapter 21, it says that the light of nature showeth that there is a God. Now this comes from Romans chapter 1. You can look at Romans 1 verse roughly 18 and following. Uh, you'll see that the apostle Paul makes the case in that section of Romans, that the light of nature makes it sufficiently clear, that his general revelation makes it sufficiently clear that there is a God, and he has uh, many attributes that are revealed, and that he is to be worshipped. But uh, the, the, while the light of nature, general revelation, shows us that there is a God to be worshipped, uh, nature and general revelation do not specify how. God is to be worshipped here. And so if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 12, this is the scripture that we read was verse 32. <clears throat> we find here a principle at work um, as God is giving um, commands about how he is to be worshipped. 
Let me, before we get to verse 32, back us up to chapter 12 here, and let's go back up uh, towards verse uh, 5. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. So God is going to set, now this is in the Old Testament because we just read at the end of the Westminster Confession, if you remember, they said when you get to the New Testament economy, the place isn't going to matter. So you have to understand these passages in the context of redemptive history in which they are located. So here God, in Deuteronomy, uh, God is preparing his people to cross the Jordan and to take the land. In case you wonder what Deuteronomy is about, uh, God here is helping his people to know what they need to do once they settle into the land. Moses is not going to be allowed to go with them. So Moses is going to give them these instructions here, and Moses will look at the land from a distance, but he will not enter himself. So they need uh, to know what to do. So the first thing that God says is, I'm going to put my name in a particular place, and I want you to worship at that place. In verse 6, it says, you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. Uh, you're going to bring all your, your worship to this place. Now, there are going to be some things that you can do in the gates of your home. Uh, we won't get into all that tonight, but jump down to verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place, and here it is again, which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. And then he goes on, if you look at uh, verse 17, he talks, you are not allowed to eat within your gate the tithe of your grain, wine, oil, etc. Verse 21 If the place which the Lord God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from the herd and the flock um, at your gates. And so there's specific instructions that are given to the people of God about which kind of sacrifices and where they can be done. Now, look at verse 28. Here's our point for tonight. After giving all that instruction, he says, Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you so that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever, for you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. And so, and then you go down to uh, verse 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. And this is interesting. He says, you shall not add to nor take away from it. So this is a verse, one of the verses that we derive what is, I said last week, the regulative principle of worship. And that is that God would be worshiped as commanded, and we are not to add to his commands, nor are we to detract from them. That which God wants us to do, if it is something he really wants us to do in worship, he will tell us. And if it is not there, then we should not do it. So the Westminster divines begin with really the second commandment. The second commandment deals with how do we worship. And it's interesting that they start there. We worship by way of God's word. God's word regulates what we do and what is forbidden. 
And after that, you'll notice in the second section is where they tell us who to worship. So the second commandment is what? Thou shalt not make any graven images. That means that we are not to represent God in any way uh, by way of art or our imagination and worship God through uh, those features. We are to worship in John 4 in spirit and in truth. We worship the living God in spirit and truth. We'll look at John 4 later in another context. But uh, we are not uh, to worship God according to images. The application of that is we should not worship the true and the living God in any way that he has not expressly commanded us to worship him. That which is not commanded is forbidden. Now, as I've said, this is different than probably the majority report in evangelicalism. The majority report in evangelicalism would be that that which is not forbidden is permitted. That would be uh, the normative principle. But the regulative principle is that which is not commanded is forbidden. That is, it is if it is not expressly there, we are not to do it, okay? Um, let me, uh, let's move on to the second section here. Then we get into really what would be the first commandment, and that is who to worship. Uh, Thou shalt have no other gods is the first commandment, boys and girls. And notice here that the Westminster divines say that religious worship is to be given to God, and then in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are specifically mentioned here. And to him alone. And then it says, not to angels, saints, or any other creature here. So notice here, number one, we worship God alone, and we do not worship any of the creatures. First specified is angels. If you look in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9, the apostle John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, he says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, this probably should tell you that the Bible really is inspired by God, right? Because, you know, John would probably have every reason not to put that in there. But John admits and confesses he did something he shouldn't have done. He saw the glory of heaven and he fell down at the feet of an angel and worshiped him. And then in verse 9, he is admonished for that. But the angel, he said to me, do not do that. That is, worship God alone. I am a fellow servant of yours. This is the angel talking to John. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. And then you have that short sentence. Um, I had a New Testament and Greek professor who felt that if he was doing the versification, he would have made this his, a verse in and of itself. Um, it, the next sentence is, worship God, period. Don't worship angels, but worship God alone. In Acts chapter 10, we can see where the Westminster divines might have gotten the also the command that we should not worship saints. 
we should not worship Christians who have gone before us. Even if they're extraordinary Christians, we should not uh, pray to them or worship them. Acts chapter 10, verse 25, this is where Peter sees the vision and then he's summoned to go to the house of Cornelius. So he arrives at the home of Cornelius and Peter comes into his house. Cornelius met him and Cornelius fell at his feet, fell at Peter's feet and worshiped him. But Peter raised him up saying, stand up, I too am just a man. So he was not to fall down and kiss the feet of Peter. He was to uh, recognize that Peter is a fellow servant uh, of Christ, and he was not to give worship to him. Also in Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel chapter 8, we are not to give worship to anything else, whether it be angels or saints or any other creature, says the confession of faith. Look at Ezekiel 8 and verse 7. Ezekiel, you remember, this is a, um, he sometimes would have these visions that would bring him back into Jerusalem. And uh, some suggest it was astral projection. I don't know. But look at verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, this is now the Lord is speaking to Ezekiel here, son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall and behold an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked and behold, now listen to this, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were the 70 elders of the house of Israel, with Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and a fragrance of cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images, for they say, quote, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Yet you will, still, you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tamuz. He said to me, do you see this son of man? Yet you will see greater abominations than these. Then he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. What were they doing, boys and girls? They were worshiping the sun. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore, 
says the Lord. I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. So God shows Ezekiel, he takes Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, you know, dig through this entrance, through this wall, and he sees all these creeping things, all these animals, all these beasts and unclean uh, creatures, and what are they doing? They are worshiping them. They're standing in front of them. He sees the 70 elders who are standing with uh, incense in their hand. They're offering fragrant incense. A cloud of incense is rising before these idols. And then he sees these women who are doing uh, likewise to a foreign god. And then he sees people bowing down to the sun. And what is God doing here? He's taking Ezekiel and he is showing Ezekiel, he's giving a, a Ezekiel a glimpse of all the idolatry. This is the church in the Old Testament, friends. This, this is a picture of how bad the backsliding had gotten. The apostasy had become so great that now even the elders are serving other gods instead of worshiping the true and the living God. So the Westminster Divines, um, in this second paragraph here, are reminding us that we are to worship nothing but God himself alone. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not angels, not saints, not any creatures, not anything that God has made, not the sun, not the moon. Remember how Jeremiah says that the people of God were blowing a kiss to the moon, offering reverence to the moon? That is not to be so in the church. We are to worship the Lord and the Lord alone in the way that the Lord is commanded. And the problem is in the West is that we have substituted the true and living God for things of our own making. Now, it might be more sophisticated than what we just read in the book of Ezekiel. But make no mistake about it. When we have a different Christ who is not really God, who has not been bodily raised from the dead, we are worshiping an idol. We are worshiping something other than the true and living God. When, we, uh, when, when elders teach that Jesus didn't really perform real miracles, that uh, it was just a spirit of generosity that fed the 4,000 or the 5,000, that's idolatry. Uh, when they explain away the Red Sea, uh, that they have a, a naturalistic explanation for how it was that Israel was able to get through to the other side, that is idolatry. And we are to worship no other God but the God as he reveals himself to us in the Bible. Now, as they move on, they, they cover the second commandment, then they move to the first commandment, and then they take up, let's talk about worship. Now, I found this also kind of fascinating. I don't know that I ever had really recognized this before until I was doing uh, the preparation for this lesson, and that they spend a lot of time on prayer. I just thought that was interesting that they would lead with prayer because I think if it were me, I probably would have led with public worship. Um, but maybe they are wiser uh, than me. They probably are. Um, to actually say, let's discuss prayer first. And maybe it's for reasons that Jonathan Edwards would later hint at 
when he said that all apostasy begins in the prayer closet. The reason that they want to emphasize prayer uh, is because of the importance of prayer. And so you have in section 3 and in section 4, and really, actually, it's taken up again uh, later uh, in half of another section that follows. And so prayer is a very important thing. Of course, this was Jesus' priority too. He, In fact, he referred to the temple as the house of, not sacrifice, the house of offerings, no. He called it house of prayer. He said, you've turned it into a den of thieves, but my father's house is a house of prayer. Um, very interesting. Now, what do they say about prayer? Well, they break it down for us. First of all, we are to pray to God alone in the name of Christ, the Son. So that is when we worship, so you children understand, you know, we worship, we call upon the name of the Lord, we call upon the name of God, our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We do so through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name because what we're doing is we are saying that we are coming to you, Father, on the basis of the person and the works of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is, the God-man, and what he's done. He's come into the world, he's walked among us, he's lived for us, he's died for us, he's been raised from the dead, so that we could have full access to God. So we come to the Father through Christ the Son in the Spirit. We rely on the Holy Spirit. We, we uh, pray that the Lord would give us the help we need in the third person of the Trinity. Christ has ascended. We cannot be where Christ is right now. But Christ has promised us in the upper room discourse that he would send the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus Christ uh, is the mediator between us and the Father and he not only gives us access to the Father, but he also sends us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to help us in the worship of God. We are to pray, the Westminster Divines say, according to his will. So we always, you know, say, Lord, not my will, but thine will be done. Uh, we pray that God's will would be what it is ultimately uh, done, uh, no matter what we may ask. Uh, we want to ask for things that are according to the scriptures. There are things that we don't know what his specific will will be for uh, things that uh, are lawful, uh, but may be left to his providential discretion. So we pray in that his will would be what is done. We need to pray, they say, in a right manner there. Notice in section uh, three there, uh, it, it, it says here, according to his will with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. And so they, they tell us how and what manner we do this. And if vocal in unknown tongue. Now, they continue with a new section on number four, and they also um, speak about who do we pray for? What do we, what do we ask for? Well, notice that they take us here essentially to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to turn in there in your Bible, 1 Timothy uh, chapter, excuse me, chapter, yeah, chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 
And look at verse 1 and 2. This is where they're getting their first point from section 4. First of all, says the Apostle Paul, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So um, this is why, again, congregation, why, for example, in the pastoral prayer, why, why do you pray? You know, why do you always pray for the president, the vice president, and the Congress, and the governor, and all the way down to the troop county commissioners? Well, because this is what Scripture enjoins us to do. That's a part of the pastoral prayer in the directory of worship that uh, most Reformed churches have. They mention that uh, the long prayer or the what we would call the pastoral prayer um, would include those kinds of petitions, that we pray for those in authority that we could live quiet lives in all godliness. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and, and to live with all dignity. Uh, and so we pray that God would give wisdom uh, to those that uh, are in offices and positions of authority, uh, that we could live out our lives for Christ in a peaceable manner. Notice that the Westminster Divines in section 4 also say that we may not pray for the dead. Now sometimes if you go uh, to other denominations, uh, other churches, they will sometimes, you'll hear them pray for the dead. You go to a funeral. I went to a funeral and they prayed for the deceased at that funeral. Well, um, you know, they believe uh, that some of them, uh, such as the Catholic Church, they, they, you go to purgatory. You know, if you don't make it into heaven right away, uh, they, you go to purgatory. And so they pray for you. Um, I went to a Roman Catholic funeral and they, the priest even said, you know, that, you know, the, the, the man is on a journey. Okay. Why is he on a journey? Well, because, you know, they, he's not yet made it, you know, into heaven fully yet. And so they have it a part of their system to pray. Uh, for those who have been uh, died and that they might go to heaven, that the Lord would have mercy on their soul. But the uh, Westminster Divines say that we may pray for those yet to be born, we may pray for those in the future, but we are not to pray for the dead. Why? Well, because the Bible teaches that it is appointed unto man to die, and then comes the judgment. We believe that once a person dies... Uh, whether they die as one of God's elect or one of they, whether they die as one of God's reprobate, that they have gone to that one of two places. There's, there's no intermediate state. And they have gone into glory or they have gone into perdition. And so the, the judgment has been rendered. Now you might think, well, why then does God have a final judgment if he puts people in heaven and hell what is the final judgment for? Well, the, the final judgment, you'll remember, is when God raises the dead, raises us all, and, it, it, and then passes on the sentence that will confirm what he has already begun to do with the soul. You know, if you think about it, if somebody is, you know, um, does, breaks a law and, you know, robs a bank, he gets, you know, arrested, he, he gets put in, where? He gets put in jail, and there he stays, ordinarily, uh, until his trial. And then once his trial is over, then he goes 
to the uh, prison. And in the same way, you know, God, in a sense, will take the soul and place the soul in that place of punishment if they are not one of God's people. Uh, and, but they will be raised up on the last day, and, they, and a final judgment will be passed on them. Um, so there, there is no point uh, for praying for those who have died. They are either in glory or they are under the judgment of God awaiting the final judgment where they will be sentenced in body and spirit. Now, it also says that uh, we should not pray uh, for those who have sinned, the sin unto death. Now, this raises a number of questions in the minds of people. What is this sin unto death that we should not uh, pray for? Let me see if I can uh, read you here a section uh, from G.I. Williamson. He says, There is a real difficulty in the concluding statement of section 4, which states that prayer is not to be made, quote, for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Williamson says this, If this means only that a person has persisted in sin and unbelief until he died, then this statement would be merely, excuse me, would merely repeat the prohibition of prayer for the dead. But if it means something else, it must be asked, A, what is the sin designated? And B, how may it be known when someone has sinned the sin unto death? If there is such a sin as distinct from persistent unbelief, it must be, According to Williamson, it must be the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. This is willful and malicious refusal of pardon upon terms of the gospel offer. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 and Hebrews 6, 6. It is to sin willfully against the knowledge of the truth and to suffer the infliction of divine hardening which is final and incurable, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. Paul says of such persons that their folly shall be manifest unto all, 2 Timothy 3, 9. We believe, says Williamson, we believe that there is a sin properly designated the sin unto death. We believe that it is manifest to all. When someone who has known the way of truth, like Judas, professed faith in Christ and walked in the company of the Lord's people makes deliberate and open apostasy from Christ, clear for all to see, it is right to pray against rather than for such. Psalm 69, verse 22 to 28. It is important, of course, to pray for all others. 1 John 5, 16. But there is a sin unto death, says John and the Lord does not say that we should pray for such as are guilty of it. And that's according to Williamson there. The only thing I would, I think, add or maybe caution in that is, at least in my mind, is that you also have, though, the reality of Luke chapter 15, of the prodigal. And, um, and so yeah, I think you have to be careful uh, there in, in our judgments, um, I think it could be possible that you could discern that somebody is in such wicked um, 
rebellion against God is to the point where they are actively undermining the gospel, where they are actively mocking it, actively seeking to thwart it, where they once were a proponent of it. Um, I think that could be a possible case. But I think at the same time, we have to be careful because the Lord also says that there are some who do seem to fall away temporarily, but then come back. Uh, You have clearly Peter himself, who denied the Lord three times, and yet was restored. So I, I think adding to what Williamson said, would like to add that caution to it. I, if you just want to know, I, I don't know uh, for certain I'm, I, I, that I, I can say absolutely that that person has sinned the sin unto death. And so I, if I'm going to err, I tend to err on the side of mercy. Uh, I do have friends that formerly preached the gospel and now do not. And, um, and I do will still at times you know, pray for them. Um, that's just where I come down because I'm just not certain where, where that line is crossed. Um, I, I've got one friend that I, I think he may have crossed it. Um, I'm just not sure, you know. And I don't know how you have any kind of infallible assurance of it. Um, myself, so I'm. I'm. That that leads some commentators to believe that that the the sin, the blasphemy against the spirit, was could only be done in that original apostolic age. Uh, there are some commentators who take that position uh, that where the extraordinary works of the spirit were being performed, you know, miraculously through the apostles. I don't know. You know, I'm just letting you know that the different positions are out there uh, on that issue. It is a tough issue. Uh, but some people go that route, and, and therefore they don't think in redemptive history it's possible uh, to, to send that sin any, any longer. I, I'd be glad to hear what your thoughts are on it, but uh, I just put that out there for you. Let me move on here to uh, section six real quickly here. Um, well, I'm sorry, section five. The other elements of reading, interestingly, so they spend a lot of time on prayer before they get to any other the other elements of worship, and they just kind of run through them. The reading of the Bible, sound preaching, um, uh, hearing of the Word of God with understanding, faith, and reverence, psalm singing, sacraments, um, oaths, vows, fasting, and thanksgiving. They all list that kind of in an order there. And uh, just, I think, very interesting. But they're saying, here are the elements of worship. This is what God, we believe, has commanded us to do. Uh, we read the Bible. We preach the Bible, we sing the Bible, uh, we administer the sacraments. I'm not going to say much about the sacraments because that's a chapter that's ahead of us. I'm not going to say much about oaths and vows because that's the next chapter. Fasting, if you go to um, sermonaudio.com, I've got at least two to four sermons on fasting. I looked it up this afternoon just to make sure. Uh, So just type in fasting where the uh, magnifying glass is and hit that magnifying glass and those sermons will come up, so I'm not going to talk about that. Um, and let's talk finally here about the, the last three sections here, and that is the worship, the place of worship, and the Sabbath. The place of worship is taken up in section six here. And um, as I alluded to at the beginning of this message here, that there was a particular place of worship 
given to the people of God under the old economy. That was where the tabernacle was. Later, the tabernacle is replaced by the temple. The temple, of course, is in Zion in Jerusalem, and the people of God were to worship there. Remember, Jesus has this conversation with the woman at the well, and the debate was, you know, where do we worship? And the woman at the well said, you know, we Samaritans think we should worship at our mountain, and you Jews, you say you should worship at yours. And Jesus made it clear to her that the Jews were right. Salvation is of the Jews first, and that they sh- that woman at the well should have been going down to Jerusalem to worship. The place did matter. However, Jesus is quick on the heels of that to then turn around and say, however, the time is coming and now is when it will not matter. And that's what the Westminster Divines are saying here, that with the finished work of Jesus Christ, Jesus fulfills everything that was significant about the temple. Um, once that offering of Christ is finished, he cries out, it is finished. God tears that veil at the temple in two and basically saying, we're done. Everything for which this temple was constructed is now fulfilled in my son and we don't need this temple anymore. And, And that's also, I think, providentially why Jesus as a prophet in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 tells that generation, that within a generation, this temple will be destroyed. Remember, the disciples are looking at the temple. They're saying, it's beautiful. Look at these stones. And Jesus says, oh, I got some news for you. You know, not one stone is going to be left on another. And there's silence until they get up to the Mount of Olives. (laughs) Very interesting, the gospel writers, I mean, they must have been stunned. And, and because you hear nothing from the disciples in response to that until uh, they get up to the Mount of Olives and they say, question, <laughs> when are these things going to happen and what will be the sign of your coming? Uh, and then you get into the whole Mount Olive discourse there. So the place did matter uh, in the old economy. Once Christ has come, the Westminster Divine saying, it does not matter. Wherever Jesus is named, that's the place of worship. Wherever Jesus is proclaimed in spirit and in truth, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, and yes, I know that was said under a context of discipline, but it applies to worship, that wherever we are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, there I will be in your midst. Peter says, to also to add to this, remember, you know, Peter was one of the ones who was admiring the temple and its stones. But later, as he's writing his epistle, what does he say? He, he makes the point that you as a believer are the stones of the temple. And you are here coming together. We form a new covenant temple as living stones of where the Spirit of God is pleased to dwell, where Christ is preached. And so the location doesn't matter, nor does the direction. The Westminster Divines note here, you don't have to bow in a certain direction. Now, in Daniel's day, yes, he had a window facing Jerusalem on purpose. And he was praying at that window for a reason. Because he was praying towards that place where God said, my name will dwell. But that has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so it doesn't matter which direction we pray in so long as we pray towards Christ's name. So long as we pray in the name of Christ our worship will be acceptable to God. Now, they include public worship here. They also mention family worship here uh, in section 6. 
It says, in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in public assemblies here. And then finally, section 7 and 8. Now, you guys hear me preach on this so much, I thought, I'm not going to say much about this tonight because I feel sometimes I worry. Maybe you don't have this sense, but I feel like, oh, I talk about the Sabbath too much. Um, It's my hobby horse, I admit it. Um, But um, here, note here, section 7 and 8. Um, they, they take up two sections on the, on the Sabbath. Now, the first one, um, they tell us that in the old economy, again, it was the last day of, of the Sabbath. Now, the one thing that the Westminster Divines open with here, though, is they want to show you that this is a moral commandment of God. There are not nine commandments left. Jesus has fulfilled all the commandments But the fourth commandment is still binding on us. There is still this principle of working six days and resting one. Under the old economy, it was the last day of of the week. But it says, from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and it continues to be the Christian Sabbath. So the Westminster divines here do not make a distinction between the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath. Now, having said that, there is uh, aspects to the old economy Sabbath that were ceremonial in nature. And they have been fulfilled in Christ. I don't think it's a sin if you turn on your stove. Okay, Under the old economy, the rest had ceremonial aspects to it so that you could not light a fire. Um, the, those kinds of regulations, I think, again, were a part of the training wheels that we spoke of this morning that in Christ have been fulfilled. So that what you have is the, the moral principle being fulfilled, but some of the, shall we say, penumbra of ceremonial and judicial aspects of the Sabbath uh, have ceased with the state of Israel, okay? We talked about that last week, okay? So the, the, the Sabbath is not necessarily completely identical with the uh, Sabbath of the old economy, but it is still uh, morally binding on us here in, in the New Testament here. Um, as I have said, I, I think we do a, a disservice if we harp on the negatives, don't do this, don't do that, and if that's what we convey. I think it is wiser to emphasize all that we have in the Lord's Day Sabbath. In section 8, it says that the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparing of their hearts, and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up in the whole time in the public and private exercise of worship, except for in the cases of necessity or, or mercy there. I think the emphasis here is on what? It is on the fact that we get to spend time with the Father. It is Father's Day, Heavenly Father's Day. 
It is an opportunity that we are to delight in, that we are to rejoice in, that we are to be grateful for. And, you know, Jim uh, Channel, I remember when he was a young ruling elder, said this, and I've never forgotten it since. He said, you know, if you do everything you really probably should do on the Lord's Day, Sabbath, there isn't really much time for anything else. If you, you, you get up, you have a, a private devotion, you eat some breakfast, you go to Sunday school, you go to worship, you have fellowship, you eat dinner, lunch, whatever you call it on Sunday, uh, maybe take a, a little nap, get up, read a Christian book, maybe go over the catechism with your kids, whatever you might do. Uh, then you got, you know, a little prayer time before the evening service. You go to the evening service, you fellowship. That's a day. <laughs> you know, there isn't much time for anything else. And I think if the, the people of God view it that way, um, it really will be a, a real delight uh, for them and, and for their posterity.